Good morning, church family. My name is Linnea Rico. Today's scripture reading is Jonah 1:17 through 2:10, which can be found on page 774 of the Pew Bibles. If you don't have a Bible of your own or know someone who needs one, please feel free to take one of the Pew Bibles as our gift to you. Again, that is Jonah 1:17, 2 through 10. Please stand as you are able for the reading of God's word. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever, yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you, into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. The word of the Lord. So we're back in Jonah, and this is the favorite part of the Jonah story, which involves the fish. Of course, that's what everybody knows about Jonah. Um, Ben Rico told me to make this joke. He said that it's the fish eating human sushi, because Jonah was, uh, was alive, so it was raw. So that's the part everybody knows and likes and, 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 and some argue with. So let's, let's recap a little bit just to make sure we're all on the same page where we are in the story of Jonah, and then we'll, we'll jump into this really just great episode in, um, in the story. So Jonah is a prophet of God from Israel, very religious, Bible-believing, church-attending kind of person. He's told to go and preach the gospel or preach God's message, actually a message of judgment, to Nineveh, which is a pagan, evil city, idolatrous city. He says no, and he heads in the opposite direction, boards a ship that's going to Tarshish, which is exactly actually the opposite direction as far as he can think he can go. And he says, I'm escaping the presence of the Lord. Of course, he knows he can't really escape the Lord, but he wants to be away from where God is and where God works. And then God sends a storm, and eventually, as we saw last week, the sailors, the pagan mariners decide to throw him overboard because that's the only way to stop the storm, to calm the storm, and to save their own lives. And so they do that, and Jonah ends up in the belly of the fish, and that's where we pick up the story this morning. Now, I think it's somewhat typical of God to first change his servant before he brings about a greater change affecting other people and sometimes many, many more People. So before there was a revival in Nineveh, which is our next week's sermon, and many people come to God in Nineveh in that idolatrous city, there was a revival in Jonah's heart. God had to change him first, and what's happening in our story this morning is exactly that. There's a transformation that happens in Jonah's heart, and it happens in the stomach of the fish. Uh, there's a great story about William Haslam, who was a pastor in Cornwall. This is going a while back, mid-1800s. He was a pastor, but he was not a converted Christian. Yes, that happens sometimes. And he knew something was off. He knew something was wrong. He knew something was missing in his life, that he didn't have a relationship with God. He performed all the religious duties, had a church, he preached every Sunday, and yet he knew that he didn't have a relationship with God himself. 
And so uh, one Sunday, he preached a sermon on Matthew 22 where the Pharisees are asked, what do you think about Jesus? What do you think about the Christ? And as Haslam was preaching, this is in the middle of preaching, in the moment, right? As he's preaching, he becomes convicted that he was no better than the Pharisees. And in that moment, as he's preaching, something changes in his heart. The people notice that there's a difference. So people are apparently paying attention, right, to the preacher, as some might. And they see the change, even the the visible... (laughs) Thank you for paying attention. The visible change in the preacher. And so one person just stands up and, sa- and starts yelling, the pastor is converted, the pastor is converted, hallelujah. <laughs> and the church breaks out into the doxology and everybody just sings and, and praises the Lord. This, this is a true story. Now, what follows is, is a massive revival in Cornwall, so 1850s, a great revival in that, that part of England. Many people come to Christ, but first, God saves his servant. God saves the messenger. And I think that's a similar thing that's happening here with Jonah, that Jonah has to change first. There's a transformation that has to happen in Jonah's heart, and this is the, the focus of our conversation this morning, is seeing what God is doing in Jonah's heart, even as he puts him in this very, very difficult circumstance. So I'd like to divide the sermon into three parts. Uh, number one, the stomach of the fish, which is where Jonah is. So God places him in a particular situation to work with him. Secondly, there's the song of faith. That's Jonah's response. And we know a lot of what happened because of how Jonah processed it. So Jonah tells us what happened, what he learned, what God revealed to him in his song, in this, this psalm, this, this poem. And then finally, there's the sign of Jonah. So we'll go a little bit beyond what happened and see what this story points us to, or who this story points us to, as we read in the call to worship uh, passage. Okay, so let's start with, with the last verse of chapter 1. So when you saw the reference in the bulletin or uh, on the screen, you thought, well, it's a weird way to divide it. We start in 117 and we go through 210. Well, that's because somebody didn't divide the chapters right, okay? <laughs> it makes no sense to divide it the way it is. Just because the song starts in chapter 2, you have to still bring the, the, the circumstance to it. And so 17 really belongs in chapter 2, because that's when Jonah gets into the stomach of the fish, and then he sings, then he responds to what God is doing. So verse 17 says, The Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. The Lord appointed a great fish. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. So Jonah gets thrown overboard, to calm the storm, and ends up in the stomach of the fish for three days and three nights. And God did it. God did it. This is all by design. This is purposefully what God wanted to see happen. So God appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. So when you think about Jonah's story, in particular, this particular episode, it's not like a wacky news segment, right? How did that happen? That guy ended up in a fish, and then he survived, and we just have no idea what happened. This is, it's not like that. This is very intentional on God's part. God arranged it in this way. It's God who sent the storm. It's God who sent the fish. It's God who commanded the fish to, to swallow up Jonah and keep him there three days and three nights, and then to vomit him on dry land. That's what God wanted to happen. And Jonah knows that this is God's doing. There's no mystery to Jonah that God, that God is behind all this. Verse 3 in chapter 2, Jonah says, For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. So Jonah knows this is God's doing. And look at how Jonah describes where he is. He says, The belly of Sheol. Sheol in the the Hebrew understanding and the Old Testament understanding is the realm of the dead. Jonah describes it as the deep. He describes it as the land where bars closed upon me forever. Or the pit. It's a graphic description of what he was feeling. Now, if you're familiar with Hebrew poetry, like if you read the Psalms a lot, uh, you would know that this is the language used of death. Not just Sheol, but the pit and the deep. 
and this, this place where the bars could close upon someone forever. So as far as Jonah is concerned, he, he's dead. Now, some commentators said, you know, he's actually dead, and then God raises him back to life. Others say, well, it's just it's poetic expression of what he was feeling. So he was close to death, but not technically dead. I don't know. I'm just going to say I don't, I don't know. I don't think we, we know enough to make the determination. But as far as Jonah was concerned, as far as Jonah was processing his situation, this was as good as death. He was feeling death. He was, it felt like death to him, and he knew that God put him there. So what is happening in this pit, right, in this deep, in this Sheol, where he is, he is as close to death as he could get and still be able to process things as they're happening? What, what is going on there? God intentionally puts him there, and I wonder if you know the feeling that Jonah has. I wonder if you have ever found yourself in the pit. That may not be in the stomach of a great fish like Jonah. But maybe it is a doctor's office when a diagnosis you had feared is announced. And your doctor says, the test results came back and you do have cancer. That's the pit. I wonder if you can identify with what Jonah may have been feeling. Maybe not in the stomach of the fish, but maybe, maybe in your own bed when you feel paralyzed with depression and anxiety. You keep reaching for hope, but you can't, you can't grasp it. It's not there to take. Life seems to be slipping away. This is as close to death as you have come. Maybe it's not the stomach of the fish, but it is a homeless shelter that feels like Sheol, that feels like the pit. You feel like, I'm in this pit, and I, I don't know if I can climb out. This may be it. Maybe it is a courtroom where the judge announces the end of your marriage. Now, you thought it was going to last forever, and now it's, it's gone. It's done. And, and you have this feeling, and your heart drops, and you feel like you're, you're in the pit. Maybe it's a phone call about your child who is in serious trouble. And you get that call, and you hang up the phone, and, and you feel like, I'm, I'm in the deep. I'm in the pit. Maybe it's when you return home after work and you pull into the garage and close the door and you realize there's no one else in the house, it's just you. And you have that sense of loneliness and abandonment. And you feel you're in the pit. This is, this is deep. And it touches you deep. Maybe it's a funeral of your spouse where the minister says, ashes to ashes, dust to dust, and they close the coffin and they lower it into the ground, the literal pit. And you feel like, I'm, I'm right there with my husband, with my wife. I don't, I don't know what to do. Whatever, whatever you have experienced in your life, and there are many, many scenarios I think most of us, if not all of us, can identify with what Jonah is feeling. And I don't know your exact circumstances, but I'd like to suggest to you this morning that it's not unusual for God who is in pursuit of you, who desires to change your heart, it's not unusual for this God to put you into the pit, to drop you into the deep, into a place and situation that feels like the realm of the dead. I'm not saying this lightly. This is not just a sermon illustration to help you track with me. This is, this is real life. 
And most of us, if not all of us, have had that feeling. Our circumstances may have been different, but we have had that feeling, we have had that experience. Some of you are right in that pit right now. And as you hear me talk about it, what I want to do is I want to bring God into that. And I want us to learn how God is involved in that pit. Because clearly God is involved with Jonah. And Jonah clearly understands that God is behind this. Now when I say that God is dropping you in the deep or placing you in the pit, I, I also am not ignoring that there are human agents involved in that. I am not saying that God is the only cause of that. There are many sinful, broken factors that contribute to that. So I'm not overly simplifying the situation because any pit, any deep place that you've been in, you can say it's my fault or it's their fault or it's the fault of this this broken, sinful world. There are other factors that are involved. And we can look at Jonah and say, yeah, the mariners threw him into the water. He was running away from God, and so that's why he was on the ship. All of that is true, and yet it's very clear in the book of Jonah that God is behind that. And Jonah says, God, it's you who cast me into the deep. It's not just the mariners throwing me and then randomly a fish swallowing me up. No, he's saying God God is behind that. You are doing something in this, and you are somehow responsible for this, and you are involved in this, and you are doing something in my life through this. So if you find yourself in the pit, you have to also see God working in your life. And I don't find it at all unusual for God to do that and for God to place you in a situation where he can work with you. The question is why, right? Let me give an illustration of of how that might work in our everyday life. Every child has had this experience. Most parents have had this experience. I had that experience when I was a kid. I remember several times just running away from where I was supposed to be. Not because I was trying to run away from my family, but for example, my mom would go to the store and and she would go stand in line because I grew up where there were lots of lines and, and stores where I was growing up in Ukraine. And so my mom would go, and she would have to stand in line to get whatever she was getting, and she, was, she would just leave me outside, and I was like, you know, six, seven or something like that. She would leave me outside, and she said, just wait for me here. And of course, you know, five minutes into it, I'm bored out of my mind, and I'm just, I'm just going to walk home. Mom comes out of the store, right? The child is gone. And so then she goes home, she finds me. It was this, this great relief that, that her child is, is, is there, and he's okay. But what happens next in in that scenario, what happened to me with my mom, what has happened to you with your parents, or what you have done with your children if you have kids, is the same thing I think that's happening here with Jonah. And this is what's happening. Mom would come to me and she would grab me by my shoulders, right? And she would sit down so she would be on eye level with me. And she would look right into my eyes, right? And she would get really close and she would constrict me so I can't move. I can't break the eye contact. And she says, I want you to listen to me, right? Listen to me. Pay attention. Stop ignoring what I'm saying. Stop running away. And that message comes so clearly because of how the child and the parent are positioned next to each other or across from each other. Everybody's had that experience, right? A kid is just doing whatever they're doing, and and mom calls them, and they're ignoring mom, and Mom starts using their middle name. They're still ignoring mom, right? And finally, what does the parent do? Grabs the kid by the shoulders and says, listen to me. You need to be paying attention. I think this is what God is doing with Jonah. And this is what God has done with many of us. He puts us in a circumstance. He puts us in a situation where you you can't not pay attention to God. And then he can talk to you. Then he can tell you what you need to hear. So he isolates you, he refocuses you, and often that happens in very difficult circumstances. For God to grab you by your shoulders often means dropping you into the deep and saying, listen, okay, pay attention. I'm going to talk to you. Don't break eye contact with me. You pay attention to everything that I'm saying. Okay. So that's what... 
God wants Jonah to do. He wants him to pay attention. This is why he puts him in this difficult circumstance. But what is God going to tell him? What does God mean to show him? There are at least two things that Jonah discovers in the pit, which is, again, very common for all of us to discover. Two things to discover in the pit, God's glory and God's grace. God's glory first, and then God's grace. We find Jonah's discoveries in his song, in his psalm, in his poem. And it really does read like a psalm. If you're familiar with the psalms, it's almost like he's quoting from different psalms, which probably means that he is turning to Scripture. He's probably remembering things that he had read and probably memorized, and he's bringing that into his experience with God. And as you, as you hear Jonah's song or Jonah's psalm, you see Jonah's faith. Jonah's is actually responding to what God is doing. He's not ignoring God any longer. He's actually now engaging with God, and he's listening to him, and he's responding to what God is telling him about himself, which is exactly what God wants to see happen, which is why we would say that's a song of faith, because faith is really just accepting God in the way that God is. That's what faith, faith is just saying, God, you are the way you have revealed yourself to me. It's agreeing that God is the way he is. It's saying, God, you really are the way you really revealed yourself to me. And I'm just accepting that. I'm acknowledging that. I'm going to live in that. That's going to affect how I see you, how I see the world. That's faith. There's a, there's a certain passivity in faith when, you, when you're responding to God. But there's also a certain activity in faith. When you're saying, now I, I, I'm, gonna, I'm taking hold of that. The vision that you gave me of yourself, I'm responding in a song of faith. And I'm processing that. I'm giving it back to you. I'm working through it, and I'm applying it to my life. So this is Jonah's song of faith. So let's deal with God's glory first and then God's grace. And this is what he discovers in the pit, which we know by the way he sings and and prays from the deep, from the pit. Now glory is to put it quite simply, is just the expression of God's nature. So God's glory is an expression of his nature, of his godness. He's showing himself, and that's glory. So God grabs Jonah by the shoulders and says, look at me. Right? That's what he says. He says, look at me. See me as I am. Deal with me on my terms. He says, I am sovereign. I rule my creation. It was my storm. Those were my waves. It's my fish that follows my will. It's my ocean and my storm that woke you up when you were on the ship. And it's according to my will that you were thrown overboard and swallowed up by my fish. And by the way, you are my prophet. And there are my people in Nineveh that need to hear my word, just like there are my people in Israel that you preached my word to. God says, you're running away from me as if you can escape me. But have you forgotten who I am? This is that moment of parent-child interaction, right? When the parent reminds the child, sometimes gently, sometimes forcefully, you're not the parent in this relationship. Right? Have you forgotten who I am? Do you know what I can do to you? Do you know you completely depend on me for your life? You can't survive a day unless I feed you and clothe you and take you places. This is what God is doing. He's, he's allowing Jonah to see his glory. Now remember, Jonah is running from that. Now he, he knows that. He knows that God is everywhere and that God created heaven and earth. He knows that. But he's running away from that. And he wants to ignore and, and reject that glory. And God says, do you know who I am? Do you know what I am like? Have you forgotten that I am God, the maker of heaven and earth? you got to deal with that, Jonah, that I, I'm the ruler of all that exists, the eternal, all-powerful, all-knowing, everywhere present, the only one who has no beginning and no end. 
And this is where God's glory just, just enters forcefully into Jonah's world. And he is restricted, so he has to listen. He has to process that now. He's in the fish, and God is the only person who's speaking to him. And so he listens. Now, th- this reminds me of, uh, I want to I take you to Job. This reminds me of that just great, great passage of, of when, when God finally shows up and God encounters Job and he speaks to him. This is Job 38. Now, let me tell you right away, I don't understand a lot of the book of Job, and I have questions I have to work through an answer in the book of Job. Like, for example, I don't know which part of the book I'm supposed to quote from, because it seems like there's a lot of wrong opinions that are given for most of the book. So I don't want to quote from the earlier chapters, but you get to chapter 38, I'm good. I, I, I'm, I'm sailing from there. So, so if I ever preach, we might just start it at 38. <laughs> but but this, it's a similar conversation that happens here with Job, right? He's suffering. He's in the pit. He uses the same language. God dropped him in the deep. And he's trying to come to grips with what is going on in my life. And all these questions, right, and all these different counselors that come to him, his friends, everybody's telling him what what the reason is for all that. And then finally, chapter 38 of Job, then the Lord, then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said. And this is where everything changes, because God shows up. And God is now talking to his child. And God says, I'm going to correct your perspective. Let me show you my glory. And this is what God, I'm not going to read the whole chapter, but this is what God says. Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? <laughs> That's a great start of a conversation. Job, do you really know what you're talking about is the, is the translation here. Dress for action like a man. I will question you. And you make it known to me. It says, you're so smart. You're so wise. You think you have answers to these questions. I will ask you now, and you tell me what you think. And come on, get up. You talk to me like a man. You answer me directly. You look me in the eye. And you answer my questions. And then the Lord goes on. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? At this point, I'm out of that conversation at this point. I have nothing else to say right? I wasn't there. (laughs) I don't even understand how the foundations work. Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Well, surely you know, Job. Or who stretched the line upon it? Or what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. It's a great passage. He said, were you there? When creation worshipped me as I was making the world? Or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb? When I made clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band? And prescribed limits to it and set bars and doors and said, Thus far shall you come and no farther, and here shall your proud waves be stayed. And it goes on for, for two chapters. God is basically saying... This is my glory. This is who I am. So all the questions that you're having, all the complaints that you're having, all the criticism that you have, you have to address it to me the way I really am. And this is who I am. This is what I can do. This is what I've done. This is how vast my wisdom is. This is how vast my power is. So if you have those questions, you talk to me directly. And so then you get to chapter 40 in Job. And the Lord said to Job, verse 2 of 40, Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. And Job answers in the only way that that is appropriate in this conversation. He says in verse 4, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once and I will not answer twice, but I will proceed no further. He's saying, I'm going to keep my mouth shut from now on. Because I will not be looking for fault in God. Because I have seen his glory. 
That is the resolution of Job, by the way. There's no answer given to why God did what he did and allowed to do what he did. God just simply shows up and reveals his glory to Job, and Job says, that's enough. <laughs> that's enough for me. I think I can go on based on that. I think it's very similar. It's a very similar dynamic here with Jonah, where God just shows up. He shows up in the pit, and he shows up, and he reveals his glory, and Jonah sees that all of this that's happening is because God is doing that, and God controls the seas, and he controls creation, and God has a plan for Nineveh, and it's all God's doing. And so when we run away from God, and when we think we are justified in judging him like, like Job may have been, when we reject him or belittle him or ignore him, all of the changes when God actually shows up and starts talking to you and starts revealing his glory, who he really is. He shows up in all his majesty and authority and, and glory. And he says, I am not some local deity that you can run away from. I am not someone you can just add to the stack of your idols and pull me out when you need my particular expertise in your life. I'm not someone you can manipulate for your purposes. He says, I am God. And you deal with me, and you deal with my glory. He says, I am God, and I am glorious. And he doesn't settle for anything else but to be acknowledged in all his glory. And this is what's happening with Jonah. See, God is putting him in this situation so he can reveal himself to him, show himself the way he really is so Jonah can finally start dealing with him. Not, not the imagine, imagined idea of God, but the way God really is. Now, maybe you had a similar experience in your life. Running away from God, ignoring his will, making excuses, holding on to resentment and bitterness, and then God throws you in the pit, drops you in the deep, and you find that God is there with you. It's an amazing experience. You feel like God just, he does this terrible thing in your life. He, he puts you in a situation where you have to pay attention to him, but then you realize he's there, and he is speaking to you. You're in the pit, and hope is slipping away, but then God shows up. Hugh Martin, a commentator I've been using for, for Jonah, says, he talks about hope and the dynamic of how do you still have the right perspective on your circumstances and acknowledge that this is really difficult, this is painful. And yet at the same time, how do you remain hopeful and full of faith in those circumstances? And this is what he said. He said, circumstances, nature, creation, sight, sense, plead for the giving up of all hope. That's the experience of the pit. Everything around you is telling you there's no hope left. There's nothing left for you here. You're done. This, this is the realm of the dead. And their pleas are strong. Their statements in themselves are true. Yes, your sense and the circumstances around you, they're telling you true things, that this is bad. But over against all these you place... He says, by faith, you place in solitary, unapproachable, unsurpassing majesty, God. So in the pit, when you say, everything around me is telling me there's no hope. And then you see God. In all his solitary, unapproachable, unsurpassing majesty. That changes your experience of the pit. That transforms what happens to you when you're suffering. So on the hospital bed, when you realize that, that there's no hope for you, you may also realize that God is glorious, that he rules over, over every cell in your body, the bad cells and the good cells, the cells that are fighting against each other. Somehow God is over that, and somehow God is in that, and somehow his purposes are being achieved through that. After you hang up the phone, you remember that God loves your child more and better than you can ever love that child. And there's a transformed understanding of the pit. 
God's glory breaks through the fog of depression. In that courtroom, in the judge's voice, you recognize another judge whose verdicts are much more important. You see God's hand in the darkest of circumstances. And what is more important, you don't just see his hand moving in your life, but you see his face. And you say, this is a glorious face. It's a beautiful face. And as you look up from the deep, you see him. That's what Jonah saw, the glory of God, that transforms his perspective on the pit. But there's something else that he saw, something that is no less remarkable and no less life-transforming. He also saw God's grace. Now, twice in his prayer, in this song of, of faith from the deep, Jonah mentions the temple. This is in, in verses 4 and, and 7. Now, listen to, uh, to Hugh Martin again, the, the commentator I've been using for, for Jonah. He says, Jonah thought of the temple, and why? That's a fair question to ask. He's singing the psalm of, of, of faith. Why does he bring up the temple twice? And this is Martin's answer. Because God had placed his name there. Because there he gave the symbol of his presence as a God of love, and especially a God of propitiated favor. Propitiated favor just means there's a sacrifice that's brought to gain God's favor, to gain his acceptance. A God dwelling between the cherubim, God of the blood-sprinkled seed of mercy on the throne of grace. So when Jonah instinctively looks to the temple, what, what is he looking for? What is he, where is he finding hope? He finds hope that God has revealed himself not just in his glory and creation, not just in the stomach of the fish, but also over the mercy seat at the temple. Where sacrifices are brought, and the blood of the sacrifice allows God to treat his people with grace and mercy. That's the symbol of who God is. God isn't just glorious, but that glory came close. It, it was made accessible to us in the temple through the sacrifice, through the priestly functions of the old covenant. Jonah thinks of the temple because this is where God has revealed himself, not only as a God of glory, but also as a God of grace. It's, it's in the temple, in the temple rituals, and the sacrifices, and the prayers of the temple that God declares himself to be our God. And he draws his people to himself as his people. And he makes that relationship with us, makes that covenant with us. Now, you may remember that Jonah is running because he is struggling with grace. This is why he's running away, because he, he thinks that God is a gracious God, that God is a merciful God. He knows that. He's seen God be merciful to, to his people, his disobedient people, his wicked king. And he is wondering if this merciful God might forgive Ninevites. That, that's his problem. He just doesn't know how far that grace could go. And so he's running away because he doesn't want to be a part of this revival or this potential forgiveness of pagans in Nineveh. And so he's running away. This is why he's running away from grace. And what does God show him in the stomach of the fish? His grace. It, it's amazing that God extends grace to his disobedient, rebellious prophet. Now, God could have shown his glory in other ways. God would have shown his power, should have, should have, could have shown his control over creation by killing Jonah and very clearly telling him, this is who I am and you don't deal with me like you've dealt with me. But God doesn't do that. He shows his glory, but he shows his grace. He puts him in the belly of the fish, but he doesn't leave him in the belly of the fish. For three days and three nights, Jonah is there processing God's glory and God's grace. And then what happens? In a very dramatic fashion, the fish vomits him. This is the right translation. The fish just vomits him onto the dry shore. And there he is, the prophet of God, covered in fish vomit, and yet reveling in God's glory and God's grace. I mean, what, what a beautiful picture of conversion. Can anybody relate to that? This, this is absolutely my conversion story. You just, you just turns up on the, you turn up on the shore, right? Covered in all sorts of junk, and you say... Man, this God, 
this glorious, gracious God, he got me. He found me. He pursued me, and he found me. And so the psalm ends, the psalm of faith ends on this declaration of God's grace. It ends on, on this, this phrase, which you find in other places in the Old Testament, by the way. This is the Old Testament formulation of the gospel. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Jonah ends his triumphant song, salvation belongs to the Lord. Let's, let's say it together. Salvation belongs to the Lord. That's, that's grace. And Jonah gets it. And this is what he had to learn in the stomach of the fish. Brothers and sisters, it's not enough to learn that God is glorious. It is important. It is necessary. It is crucial. It is an amazing experience to see his glory in any, any way that, that God shows himself. But we must also learn that he is gracious. We must discover for ourselves that all that majesty, all that sovereignty, all that authority, all that power, all that rule over creation in big things and small things, that all of that God uses for your benefit. It's incredible, isn't it? When you know God's glory and you've experienced that, and then you make the connection to God's grace and you say, all of that, all that God is, God says, I am on your side. And I will change you, and I will bless you, and I will draw you to myself, and I will not let you go, and you're not going to stay in the pit. God is a God of grace, a God of mercy, a God of steadfast love. And he only puts us in the pit so we can find him there. So this is not punitive. This is not punishment. But God has placed in Jonah in the stomach of the fish so he could see his face, so he could know him, so he could experience his love and be transformed by him. Listen to Karl Barth. He says, God has mercy on us. He says yes to us. He wills to be on our side, to be our God against all odds, indeed against all odds, because we do not deserve his mercy, because as we rightly suppose, he should say no to us all. But he does not say no. He says yes. He's not against us. He is for us. This is God's mercy. This is what Jonah learns. Salvation belongs to the Lord. This is what all of us need to learn, and often we learn it in the deep. And finally, we get to the last point. We must look beyond Jonah's experience to something else or someone else that it points to. If the temple was the sign of God's glory and grace, the combination of God's glory and grace to Jonah, what is the sign of God's glory and grace to us. What is the new temple? Who is the new temple? Jesus. Jesus is the new temple who, has, who becomes to us a symbol of who God is, a revelation of his glory and revelation of his grace to us. And so when we pray, when we sing a song of faith, we don't look to the temple in Jerusalem, we look to the cross of Jesus. Because that has become the symbol of the kind of God that he is. And Jesus himself connects it to that. And in the passage that we read in Matthew 12, the Pharisees are saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. The question is, a sign of what? What are they looking for? They're looking for proof that Jesus is, in fact, coming on God's behalf and bringing glory and grace to his people. They're looking for proof that God is coming to save his people, that salvation belongs to the Lord and it's coming to his people. That's what they're asking for. They're saying, give us a sign. Give us something. Give us something to prove to us that you are who you say you are, that you really are glorious and that you really are gracious. And what does Jesus say? He says, just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And no sign will be given to you except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Jesus says the way you're going to know that God really is a God of glory and grace, 
that salvation really belongs to the Lord and that God is coming to save his people is when I am going to die and rise again. And he says, Ninevites repented because they saw the sign of Jonah, because they saw, they heard his story. But you will repent because you will see the cross and the resurrection of the Son of Man. Salvation comes to us through the Son. Salvation belongs to the Lord because we can look at the cross and say, this is how I know my God is the God of glory, the God of grace. This glory was made accessible to us in Jesus, not only through the temple with its very limited exposure to God. We read in, in John 1, 14 that the Word became flesh, so God became human and dwelt among us. Jesus became the God-man who lived among us. And we have seen his glory. Notice the language. We've seen his glory. So what Jonah learned in the, in the belly of the fish we see now in Jesus. And we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father. And here it comes, full of grace and truth. Grace and truth is the New Testament way of saying steadfast love. It's saying he's a God of mercy. He's a God of love. He's a God of grace. And we see in Jesus both the glory that comes close to us, but the glory that is now mixed with grace and made available to us. When Jesus died on the cross, he descended into a pit that none of us can imagine. Jesus descended into the deep that none of us can fathom. He saw God's hand in it. He knew God's hand was involved, but he did not see God's face. Jonah saw God's face. We see God's face when, when he drops us into the pit, but Jesus did not see God's face. Remember, we sing, we sing the song, How Deep the Father's Love for Us. And there's that line, right? The, the Father turns his face away. Behold the man upon the cross, Jesus. But the Father turns his face away. When Jesus is in the pit, in the deep, in distress, in the realm of the dead, in Sheol, God's face isn't there for him. But on the cross, much like Jonah learned at the temple, we learn that God is the God of propitiated favor. That the sacrifice of Jesus, this unimaginable suffering, and real death, right? So Jonah, we're not sure what happened. Jesus, we know what happened. Real death, he was really dead. God and man, really dead. And we know that that sacrifice, that blood, ushers grace into our lives. The God of propitiated favor. The God who dwells between the cherubim. The God who dwells between the beams of the cross. The God who dwells on the blood-sprinkled seat of mercy. The cross has become the mercy seat for us. And at the same time, as we contemplate the sacrifice of Jesus that propitiates favor for us, we also contemplate that the mercy seat becomes the throne of grace for us, to which we are called to come boldly, confidently, whenever there's a need, in time of need, whatever the need is, whether we need mercy or grace or anything else, we come boldly to the throne of grace because that's the place of God's propitiated favor. That's the blood-sprinkled mercy seat where God dwells and deals grace to his people. Now, we can't forget the resurrection. The cross allows us to see God as a God of propitiated favor, a God of grace, but the resurrection brings glory back into it. This is, this is the sign of God's power, the resurrection of Jesus. He's the first fruit, right? He's the, the first, the pioneer, the forerunner for us to show us that there is a way out of the pit. And let me tell you today, whatever you're dealing with, there is a way out of that pit. Because Jesus went into the pit that's deeper than yours, and he came out. And he came out stronger, and he came out more glorious, and he came out with so much supply of grace 
that that grace, when given to you, will lift you up as well. The resurrection of Jesus changes everything. It changes your experience of the deep and your experience of the pit. I'll end on this, and then we take communion. Jesus tells us in Matthew 12, he says, If Nineveh repented because they heard the story of the fish swallowing the prophet of God and that prophet discovering God's glory and God's grace in the fish, he says how much more we should repent because we have seen not just a prophet being swallowed up by a fish but the Son of God dying and rising again. And if Nineveh was brought to repentance, shouldn't we be brought to repentance because someone greater than Jonah is here? Someone bigger than Jonah is here. There's a more complete picture of God's glory and grace that we have in Jesus. And so I leave you with this. Whatever you're dealing with, and some of you are believers, most of you are believers, and you're walking with Jesus, and you may be in a particular tough place in life right now. You may have identified with some of the scenarios I've thrown out there. Maybe you have your own scenario where you're feeling the deep on the pit. And I'm asking you to look up and see his face. Because he is there, because of Jesus, because of his death and resurrection, he is there with you, working on you, changing you. Embrace it. And if you're not a believer, I'm asking you that as you hear the story of Jesus, one greater than Jonah, dying and rising again, to show you that he is a God of glory. He's the same God who created everything. That's the same God who's changing everything and restoring his creation and redeeming you. He's showing himself to you as the God of grace. That whatever pit you have dug for yourself, whatever the circumstances of your life are, God is here to welcome you into his presence. To be with you. For you to be part of his family. To be part of his life. And even his own life is going to come into your, into your life. The resurrection power is going to come into your life and produce all sorts of changes. And that is absolutely possible. So if you're not a believer... I'm asking you, don't come to the table, but run to him, turn to him, look to him, and say, lift me up of this pit.